You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Good morning, everybody. Lovely to see you, lovely to be here today, and lovely to share with you. Thanks, Caroline, for reading so beautifully Acts 11 and then 13. I want to talk tonight, uh, this morning, about the church that took the gospel to the world. Um, it's been lovely kind of preaching to you a few times in, over this past year, and I feel like we're kind of getting to know each other, and that's been pretty, pretty special. I've been enjoying that a lot. I must say, though, I've been surprised at how funny you think I am. <laughs> See? <laughs> I hardly have to say anything, and it's funny. Because I'm not normally like that. I'm your straighty 180 preacher, and uh, I, I'm very serious about preaching. So it's a great surprise to me to find that you're all kind of laughing. Um, I was once invited to preach at a church, and the text was Jonah, chapter 1. You know where Jonah runs away and so forth. And um, I prepared the message dutifully, and I was ready to preach it. And they rang me the next day and said, oh, by the way, it's a special service. Everyone's invited their unbelieving friends. So... Could you make it sort of light and breezy sort of message? I, I just don't do light and breezy, you know. Uh, and it was a shame. Like, uh, I'd already written the message and the title was, You Can Run, But You Will Die. <laughs> <laughs> so we were sort of stuck, you know, trying to preach that in a bright, breezy, light, easy sort of way. Just, just didn't work, so... So my normal standard messages are very serious, right? I think of myself as a very serious-minded preacher. So it's always a bit surprising to find how funny you think I am. Anyway, this morning I'm speaking about the local church. So Father, thank you for the grace you have given us. Thank you for the blessing just this morning has been so far. Worshipping you, praying reading your word, getting to know one another. Bless you, Lord, how good you are and how good it is to be together. Thank you for this part of your word. Teach us now, Lord, how to be the kind of church you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Some, some churches have a strong sense of their mission in the world, don't they? Some churches are very purposeful. They're not happy to be just inward-looking, a kind of religious club, but are outward-looking um, and believe that they have a God-given purpose to be light in the darkness, to be salt in the world, to be witnesses to Christ. And Harbour Side is a church like that. That's how you have framed yourselves. You want to, be, you want to take the hope of Jesus to Mossman and beyond. You want to reach out beyond yourselves and take the good news about Jesus out into the unbelieving world. And so this morning I'm in Acts chapter 13, and I'm asking... What does it take to be a church like that? What does it take to be a church um, that, has that, to, to, that sustains that kind of mission and purpose? And why Acts 13? Well, because in Acts 13, what we read here is, uh, what we see here is the very first primitive church launching out on its first intentional outreach. You read through the book of Acts to this point, sure, you'll see lots of evangelism, lots of people want to faith in the Lord. But this is the moment when the church deliberately turns its face towards the world and towards the people of the world. The first church to do this was this church in Antioch. And in Acts 13, 1-3, we see the very first step they took. 
the sending out of Saul and Barnabas. And from here on, Antioch becomes the center of the expanding church. This is the church that takes the gospel to the world. And by listening closely to Luke's description of this church uh, in these in 13, 1 to 3, and then back in chapter 11, we can learn a lot about mission strategy, the mission strategy of the local church. So the church that took the gospel to the world, what was it about the church here in Antioch that made it the launching pad for the world's global, the church's global mission? I want to look at three dimensions of this extraordinary church. And firstly, the gospel they preached. So we start, and it would be good if you've got your Bible open, we start in chapter 11, um, and we're thinking about what gospel did they preach? And in brief, it was this, the world has a new king. If we double back to chapter 11, verse 19, um, we get to see how this amazing church was planted, what, what the sort of origin, the backstory of this amazing church in Antioch. You probably remember after the martyrdom of Stephen, the Jerusalem church was persecuted for some time, and all the believers except the apostles were forced to flee the city. And this, of course, had the effect not of suppressing the gospel, but of propagating it. It's a bit like when your children are helping you garden and you're pulling out thistles and they're shaking them and the seeds are flying everywhere. And you know that's not helping. They think they're helping, but it's not helping. And it's the same with the Jerusalem church. The uh, leaders there in Jerusalem thought that they were suppressing the church, but they were not. They were propagating it. And Luke tells us that in that outflow of believers from Jerusalem, um, many of them headed north up the Mediterranean coast and some went across the sea to Cyprus. Of those that went to Cyprus, several then went back across the water to Syrian Antioch, a few hundred kilometers away. When they arrived in Antioch, they began to preach the gospel there. And Luke tells us in chapter 11, verse 20, that the distinctive thing about what they did then was to preach to the Gentiles. They preached to the non-Jews. And that many of these non-Jewish Gentiles came to faith. And so in verse 21, we read, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So that's the kind of foundation story of the church in Antioch. Uh, largely Gentiles, um, won by this kind of random outflow of believers from Jerusalem. What was the gospel they were preaching? And Luke summarizes it in chapter 11, verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, familiarity with that expression might blur the meaning for us. When we hear the word gospel, good news, well, we might think that that's a heartwarming, well-meaning message about Jesus. What we might miss is the very public nature of this message. You see, in the Greco-Roman world, a gospel was the public declaration of a momentous historic event. The gospel was what you announced when there was a new Caesar or when there had been a historic military victory. The Christian gospel, therefore, is more than just a stirring, heartwarming message. It's the announcement that something significant has happened and that as a result, history has turned a corner and the world will never be the same again. It's something similar with the word Lord, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The word Lord was one of many words people in that era used to speak about the Roman emperor. So to speak of the Lord Jesus 
was to claim that Jesus has the rightful claim to that title rather than Caesar. And throughout the New Testament, the claim that Jesus is Lord is anchored in the resurrection. And so the gospel of the Lord Jesus is therefore a public declaration that when Jesus rose from the dead, he became the world's true and rightful king. The world has entered a new era. And we read that many people heard that message and they believed and they turned to the Lord. In other words, they turned their backs on their previous lifestyle, their previous pattern of worship and trust, often in idols and false gods, and they yielded to the rule of Jesus. And so the church in Antioch was born. Great numbers of people were brought to the Lord. Luke tells us something similar three times. Huge numbers of people came to faith in Christ at that time and in that place. It was a powerful moment, and it could only be explained in verse 21 by the Lord's hand. The Lord's hand was with them. Amazing moment in the history of the church. Now, this was big news for the wider church, and soon after news of it came back, filtered back to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem believers were very interested in what was happening in Antioch. And it was a bit big deal, not just because hundreds of people were coming to faith, but because they were mostly Gentiles, non-Jews. So the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to investigate. When Barnabas saw what was going on, he was overjoyed. And in his mind, this was all evidence of the grace of God at work. He then decided to settle in there with the Antioch church to support them and strengthen them. And his message in verse 23 of chapter 11, remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. Now that you've pledged yourselves, pledged allegiance to King Jesus, live that out with everything you have and everything you are. Remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. And then in a decisive move, Saul, uh, Barnabas travels to Tarsus, to bring back with him the young, powerful teacher named Saul to share in the ministry. And together, Saul and Barnabas ministered there in that young church for a whole year. So successful was the ministry. So powerful was it that the wider city became aware of this new movement. And it was the place where these new uh, believers were first called Christians, Christians. So that's the story of the foundation of the amazing church in Antioch. What gospel did they preach there? It was this, the world has a new king. His name is Jesus. Submit to him with all your heart. The gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were in Philippians. And we, in fact, we've been a couple of times in a passage. And I wonder if you can remember what it was. Um, the gospel of Jesus, of the Lord Jesus, the affirmation that Jesus is Lord. What does that remind you of from the book of Philippians? Jesus is Lord. Anybody? Yeah, error. Jesus is the answer. That's right. It does indeed. In Philippians chapter 2, do you remember we were in chapter 2 a couple of weeks ago? And remember on the page it's indented. Do you remember that? Why is it indented? Because it's a song. It's an early song or an early creed. Do you remember what it's about? It's a story of Jesus. It's the story in three parts. It has a middle, a beginning, and an end. The middle, the beginning of it is the story of what? It's the story of how Jesus descended. 
the story of self-emptying. You remember, it's a story about how Jesus, though he was equal with God, didn't count equality with God, something to be held on to, but emptied himself, became a human being. As a human being, he became a servant. As a servant, he was obedient to God, even though it took him to death. And the death he died was the lowest, most shameful, worst kind of death you can die. So that it's a story of descent. He didn't count equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself descending. That's the beginning of the story of this ancient song. What's the next stage in the story of this ancient song, Philippians chapter 2? It's the story of ascending. Therefore, God raised him up and exalted him. And gave him a name which is above every name so that he could rule over everything. It's the story of Jesus ascending. And then the third stage, the end stage in the story, it's of Jesus filling the whole created order so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue above the earth, in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the gospel of Jesus the Lord, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. So when we read in Acts chapter 11 that the gospel they were preaching was the gospel of the Lord Jesus, that's the story they were telling. That's the song they were singing. That's the story that they were proclaiming. Jesus is Lord. One of the proudest moments in my life happened here well, arose out of ministry here at this church. We were invited one time to uh, be part of a rally, a sort of Easter rally, I think it was, at the Opera House. And, um, you know, they were walking in from four quadrants of the city. This is going back into the 90s, uh, so that we would form a big cross walking in. Uh, and we were sort of heading up the north side contingent, maybe a 1,000 people walking across the Harbour Bridge. So, I arranged for us to build a, make a banner, a three-meter banner, and it had written on it, Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth. Beautiful banner. And I made it so that we could put it across the front of the church here if we needed to. And so we met down at Milson's Point there. We had uh, these sort of poles to hold up this banner thing. But once we got it up, the wind was just, it was sort of so hard to carry it. The wind was blowing us around. We got up the stairs on Milson Point and we're walking across the bridge and it was slow going. It took us about two hours to walk across. And we needed two people, one at each end, to hold this banner up. And it was heavy and hard work. And uh, the thing I was proud of was that I, I held up that banner. <laughs> and I held my half of it. The other end, they were changing every 15 minutes. It was so hard, but I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't give up. I just wouldn't stop. I couldn't stop. I wanted to declare to the passing traffic and to my people and to the thousand people that we were leading, Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth. And that's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. Preaching that Jesus is the king. The world has a king. The world has a king and his name is Jesus. This is a question of authority. We often put the gospel in terms of an appeal to self-interest. 
Do you want to go to heaven? Trust in Jesus. That's a different gospel. The New Testament gospel is the world has a king and his name is Jesus. It's a question of authority. And you know, when we go out into the world proclaiming that Jesus is king, what we are doing, we are like heralds announcing the beginning of a new era. We're like town criers announcing that history has taken a new turn and the world will never be the same again. We go out into the world as ambassadors announcing that King Jesus will be here soon to take possession of his kingdom. Get ready to stand before the king. That's what we are doing when we declare the gospel. We are claiming the world for King Jesus. We are calling on people to repent and yield to the kingship of Jesus. The world has a king. His name is Jesus. And friends, on that day when we stand before King Jesus, do you know who will stand before him and who will be rejected? Those who will stand before Christ on that day will be those who have acknowledged him before men. Those who have declared their allegiance to King Jesus in the world. And do you know who will be rejected on that day? Those who have denied him. And so what Jesus is talking about there in Matthew chapter 10 is the moment of pressure. The moment when the question arises, who are you allied to? Who are you yielded to? And the question will be, in my life, did I sign up and make it publicly clear that I am yielded to King Jesus or did I not? Maybe you like the way Paul puts it in Romans better, in Romans, in Romans 10, where Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Have you confessed that Jesus is Lord? Have you opened your mouth before unbelievers and said, I believe Jesus is Lord. I believe Jesus is the king. I believe the world has a king that his name is Jesus. Friends, that's what the primitive church called faith. It has a private part, what we believe in our hearts. It has a public part, and that's what we say with our mouths. So great to gather as the Lord's people. So wonderful to gather in this community and all of Christ's community. So beautiful to be led, to sing out our praise for the Lordship of Jesus. And thank you, worship leaders in every all our worship leaders for leading us and blessing us in that way. Thank you for helping us to sing again that ancient song. Thank you for equipping us to go out into the world and sing that song in the world. Because that's all that remains for the Lord's people is to take that ancient song and sing it in the world. Sing it in the hearing of unbelievers. The world has a new king and our task is to tell the world. So that's the gospel that they preached in Antioch. Now let's have a think about the community that they shared. Um, 
And the church at Antioch demonstrated the most amazing new way of living together, new way of being human together. Just as these believers proclaimed a new king, so they shared in a new kind of community, a new way of living. So much here, I just don't have time to get into any of the detail, but we're in chapter 13 now, verses 1 to 3. This church was a multiracial church. Um, we read there of Simeon called Niger. It means black. Simeon was a black man. Lucian is from Cyrene in North Africa. It may well have been black. I'm tempted to say one or two of these were black and the rest were white, but there were no white people here. These were all, the remainder were all men of Mediterranean, what do we say? Mediterranean appearance. Uh, they were Middle Eastern people, um, but they were mixed race. They were multi-ethnic. There were Jews and Gentiles together. And we know that in this, in this city, in this church, Jews and Gentiles routinely ate together. This was a new kind of family. And in verse 2, that they were worshipping together. They met together to worship the Lord. It's the word we use for priests. Think down of the temple, uh, not in Jerusalem, but out amongst the Gentiles. God in their midst and God's holy ones purified and washed to dwell in the presence of God himself. We also read that they were fasting. They prayed together, seeking God's will. They were spirit-led. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, and in verse 4, the Spirit sent them on the way. They were also sharing their wealth. Did you notice back in chapter 11, when Agabus the prophet says there's going to be a famine down in Jerusalem, so they all put in money to send. That was their instinct, to share their wealth, one, one with the other. Um, each according to their ability. And then when you add to that, that in chapter 3 of Acts, they had a common fund, which was for each according to their need, so that you have people giving each according to their ability, so that, the, each, so that the, that money could be used to each according to their need, each according to their ability, given to each according to their need. You know what that is? That's primitive socialism. <laughs> It's not communism because it's voluntary, but it's socialism. It's sharing wealth, the rich sharing for the benefit of the poor. That's income distribution. That's socialism. This happened instinctively here in Antioch. It's just what they did. This was a reconciling community. Um, there were people here from very different life stories. And the, the, the basis here, or at least the the potential here for all kinds of division and separation. Remember, this church was planted because of the persecution in Jerusalem and Saul was a participant in that persecution and now Saul becomes a leader in this church so that the persecutor and the persecutees are in fellowship together. That's the kind of reconciling thing that happens in the church and just a year or so later, Paul will write about church life that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And uh, the three great walls of division in the ancient world breaking down, collapsing, so that the people of God could experience what it means to be in a reconciled community. What a remarkable community. So much of what we take for granted in our world has its origin here in Antioch. 
was first demonstrated as a viable way to live here in Antioch. Um, it's been so lovely to share in the Alpha course, uh, and my group is a fantastic group. We're loving being together as a group. When we were at our biggest, which was 12 of us, uh, there were 12 people from six different nations who speak approximately nine languages. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that amazing? And even at the slightly smaller version that we had the other day, which was nine people, I think, um, we were translating from several languages in order to understand what we were talking about. So exciting to be part of that. Um, that's what happens in Christ. Nations and languages and cultures are merged together in Christ. Fantastic in this kind of quality of community. I can remember being here preaching, and we had at that time here in the 90s um, uh, a senior partner from Freehills at one end of the pew, and then next to him was a guy named Michael Grace. He was a homeless man. He brought all his worldly belongings to church every day in plastic bags. And he would sit up the back and eat his lunch. He loved salada biscuits, you know, and they're very crisp and snappy. And all his plastic bags were very rustly, like his kitchen bag and his, you know, everything was a rustly kind of business. And so there's this senior partner with Freehills, a lawyer. You know, what's he earning? Hundreds of thousands of dollars a year sitting right beside Michael Grace, the bag man. Uh, there you go. That's community, Christian community. That's reconciling differences that would otherwise keep people apart. Um, one time when I was pastoring here, I, I went away on holidays and I forgot to organize who would do communion on that day. And a month later, communion rolled around and I suddenly realized I forgot the plan, who was going to do communion the previous Sunday. So I went out to my secretary and said, Jill, I just realized I forgot the plan, who would do communion last month, who did it? And she said, I did it. Now, what's amazing about that is that she was probably there for, in fact, definitely, she was the first woman to preside at the Lord's Supper in the 90-year history of Mossman Baptist Church. The first woman. That's amazing, isn't it? Second amazing thing was I didn't hear about it from anybody. It was so natural, normal, right, acceptable. Yeah, there are two miracles all in once out there. But that's what a reconciling community is capable of. A woman taking that position, not because of a political campaign, not because of a civil rights agenda, because it was obvious and natural and normal, that's a reconciled community. Just two quick applications for us of this. You know, in some modern missionary thinking, um, have argued for the homogenous unit principle, you know, that mission is best done amongst like-minded groups rather than trying to cross cultural divisions. And sometimes church plants work on that, focusing in on a particular group of people, social group, thinking that we will reach the like-minded, similar character type of people that way. But the New Testament shows us that actually that's completely wrong and that the opposite is the case because the gospel runs so much deeper than our membership of social groups. 
And it enables the church to reach out across all the barriers that routinely divide people against one another, race, status, gender, and wealth. You know, it's the the reconciling unity of the church, which is a sign to the world of a new way to live and of a new set of possibilities for the human race. And let me just apply it in another way and encourage you to treasure the developing community that you are experiencing here at Harborside. It's so valuable. It's so wonderful in its own right. And, you know, it's in the quality of community that the that the best ideas come for ministry. Um, you know, um, Harborside is already a very well-formed church, but if the Lord has something new and different and unique and distinctive for Harborside to do, then that idea will come from one of you. One of you will get the idea. It'll be, hey, what about this? Half an idea, a quarter of an idea, a fraction of an idea, and then a conversation that then engenders interest and a logic and a connection and a process and that then becomes a leadership conversation and then the, somehow the church finds its way to do this thing that it had never thought of before. And that will only happen when there's quality of communication and quality of community. So preserving the quality of community, treasuring the quality of relationship is what makes the church a seedbed of new ideas, full of possibilities. So let me encourage you then. Place great value on the quality of the community here. Protect it, nurture it, treasure it. So we're trying to understand the church which took the gospel to the world and we've looked at their gospel, which is the declaration that there's a new king all over the world and then a new kind of community which they shared. I just can't finish without speaking about the most important person in this story and that's the God they obeyed, a God who was doing something completely new in the history of the world. Because at its core, this striking new development in the history of the early church is, is entirely the result of God's action. It wasn't easy to get the first Christians to understand that the gospel about Jesus the Lord was for the whole world. But it happened, and it happened because God made it happen. So in the book of Acts, we see the first Christians slowly realizing that this new movement was not to be just a faction within Judaism. We see God patiently teaching the new church that they were supposed to reach out to the world with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. I don't really have time to go into the detail of this beautiful story about the spirit, how the Spirit moved in the church at Antioch to set apart Saul and Barnabas, how the Spirit of God had been preparing Saul for this, how on a particular day an unnamed prophet from among them stood up and said, the Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And how on the day when the church, in obedience to that prophetic word, sent them out on that day again, the Spirit spoke to send them on their way. Spirit moving in his church. God moving in the local church by his spirit. God stirring the church to take the gospel to the world in a new way. God himself moving them and making them into this unique, outreaching, mission-hearted church. 
I just want to apply it briefly in a couple of ways. I want to highlight, the, again, the connection between the quality of community this church shared with each other and the movement of the Holy Spirit. But our unity is in Christ and we are able to keep open lines of communication between us. Then we are opening and listening to each other. And when we are, the Spirit can speak in and through us. And so beware then, friends, of churches that define themselves over and against other churches. Have you met churches like this? I certainly have. Churches who say to themselves, we have the truth, but they don't. We have the spirit, but they don't. We are the comp- they are the compromisers, but we are the true believers. They are dead, but we are. Have you met churches like that who are willing to teach their people that they are the churches? are somehow weak or failing or not true. And as a result, our witness to Jesus is fractured. And as a result, we're not listening to one another. And so we don't hear what the Spirit is saying. Friends, the church needs to hear the Spirit of God addressing it in our day and in our time. And one of the keys to that is quality of community, staying connected to one another, both inside the church and between the churches. Wherever Jesus is glorified as Lord, whoever does that is a brother or sister of ours. And we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. And then secondly, well, what happened at Antioch was the Lord's hand was with them. And that's what we need, isn't it? The Lord's hand to be with us. They prayed and the Lord's hand was with them. They fasted and the Lord's hand was with them. They declared to unbelieving people that the risen Jesus was the world's new king and the Lord's hand was with them. What kind of prayer do you think it takes to support a movement of the hand of God like this? I asked a Pakistani evangelist once who had planted dozens of churches, I asked him, what kind of prayer routine does your church have to undergird this work of God that's happened amongst you? And what they did was meet on a Friday night between 8 and 12, four hours. They called it a half night of prayer once a month. And so I uh, came back to my church and said, I think we need to do that. We need to pray for half night of prayer once a month on Fridays from 8 till 12. And the people said to me, oh, look, Friday's the worst possible night of the week. We want to, we're tired. We've had a busy week. Last thing we want to do is come out and pray I want to stay home, watch the football. That's, that's what you do. Go out with our friends. So I said, oh, that's okay. That's fine. Let's do it on Tuesday mornings at 2 a.m. From 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. And at that point, they decided Friday wasn't a bad idea after all. <laughs> and that's what we did for years, a half night of prayer, four hours of prayer, once a month. Um, if you ask Giri, the Nepalese pastor, who you'll see a little bit later, um, in their church, they have a monthly day of prayer. Saturdays, everybody gathers for prayer. They fast and they pray for the whole day on Saturday, once a month. That's the routine of prayer that you need. And the Pali church is doubling every five years. Doubling every five years. What's the tradition of prayer that you come from? Occasional monthly prayer meetings where the diehards gather. Nobody really goes there, nobody really knows what's going on, but we have a prayer meeting, but nobody really knows what it is. Is that your experience? Have you been in a church that had a vigorous, committed, determined prayer ministry? 
It's not actually in our tradition for the most part. And that's tragic. And that's why the Australian church is halving every 40 years. So we are in a state of catastrophic decline. Church in Australia, halving every 40 years. Um, What's the answer? God's hand is the answer. And how do we position ourselves so that we are calling upon the Lord to do what only God can do? We pray, we pray, we pray. So let me encourage you. Um, grab a hold of the prayer opportunities here at Harborside where they are. Um, be in prayer yourself privately. Uh, catalyze your own ideas about how to pray and when and where to pray. Um, if there's a simple way of saying what Harborside Church needs, it's this, we need the Lord's hand to be with us. So let's pray for that. Let's develop a culture of prayer. Let's grow into the business of prayer and we'll be blessed. So that's the amazing Baptist Church of Antioch. There it is. It's a Baptist church at Antioch. It's the church that took the gospel to the world. Gospel they preached. There's a new king in the world. Community they shared, a new way of living in the world. And the God they obey, the God who is doing a new thing in the world. So what we're talking about is the local church. Not talking about the church in abstract or in theory, but Christ's church in a particular place and a particular time. And that's always the way it is with the church. It is the local church. God's people in a particular place at a particular time. Antioch or Atlanta or Johannesburg or Sao Paulo or Sydney. That's how the kingdom of God comes, through local churches. Do you know there are 37 million local churches in the world? 37 million local churches just like us. This is where it's happening. And I hope then that you are the kind of Christian who commits to the local church, who treasures the local church, who works hard in your local church. And may this local church, Harborside, play its part in God's great purpose to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus to the world. Bless you guys. I'm just waiting for you to start laughing. Now. <laughs> anyway, bless you guys. Thanks so much. Should we just pray for a moment? I missed that 11.02 moment. I thought that was going to come, and it didn't come. So I'm going to do the 11.02 prayer right now. Okay, so let's pray. Let's just stand as we pray. I'm going to pray about the Alpha Course. I'm going to do the thing we just talked about, praying. Get yourself in a position so you can seek after God. Get yourself in a place where you put your focus on what God is doing in the world. Loving Heavenly Father, we bless you for the opportunity that we have on Wednesday nights in the Alpha Course to share your gospel with people who don't know it. I want to thank you, Father, for the people you have drawn. Those beautiful people don't know you, don't know Christians, don't know the church, anxious and uncertain, yet they entrust themselves into our community. Bless you, Lord. What a gift that is. And I pray, Lord, that each one of those people, you would bless them and you would meet with them. And Father, I want to pray for those who are coming week by week with particular needs and particular problems. Lord, they they need to know your touch and your power in their lives in particular ways. Lord, help us to 
know those needs and to meet those needs, but also, Lord, help us to pray for them so that those folk will experience your true, real power at work in their hearts and in their lives, Lord. And now I want to pray for those who have come a couple of weeks and then lapsed. Bring them back, Lord. Pray that you would stir in their hearts and make them feel this insatiable sense that I need to be there. I don't know why, I just know I need to be there. Holy Spirit, draw them, call them from the deepest parts of their being. Bring them into your presence and bring them into the sound of the gospel. And Lord, for everybody who's sharing, the leaders and the people who serve at table and the people who cook, Lord, everybody who's serving in this way, Lord, thank you for them. Bless them and anoint them and equip them. And now, Lord, by your spirit, glorify Jesus as Lord amongst that ministry. Let people come to saving knowledge that you rose from the dead and that you are Lord. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.